A reading from Luke 4, 42 through 44. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea, the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. There is a political argument that basically goes that uh, once you let immigrants in, you can't get rid of them. That's me. We said goodbye last week and we're back. (laughs) But it is an absolute privilege and joy to be here. My name is David. For those who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors uh, in Trinity Grace Church, and um, I want to speak today, just I want to take a moment in this kind of last breath before the fall hits full steam ahead to step back, to look at the Word of God, to look at the story that God has been speaking over generations and generations and generations and what He invites us into. And so, uh, why don't you pray with me just as I start. God, we are delighted to gather that we can do this. such a great privilege. We're grateful for your word over us. We're grateful for your invitation into life, abundant life. We come this morning to seek again, open our hearts again, speak to us again, invite us again, whisper again into our ears Call us to life again by your spirit as you move, we pray. Amen. A gospel gone wrong. There is an ad that I've been watching during the course of the Olympics, and I trust you've seen uh, it too, at least most of you. It is an ad uh, where Christopher Waltz, a foreigner himself from the American story, um, very cleverly starts painting a picture of... America. And it's a, it's a little intriguing. He starts by sitting as an outsider, just speaking about, you Americans, you just do, 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 you work so hard, busy, busy, busy. He starts complaining about an American ethic where you can't sit still, and he models it by being the lady on the bike, exercising, baby strapped to the chest, while conference calling and leading her team at work. Um, doing. He moves on to vacationing without being disconnected even under the waterfall in a really, really beautiful setting. He moves on to the comment of over-parenting and capturing every moment of the kid uh, doing his extracurricular stuff because we have to give them certain experiences and sharing it, obviously, on social media. We know who we are, parents. We know we do this. But then he starts to speak about the achievements of America, and particularly relating to the Olympics. And the headline is another gold medal for us, as we certainly saw during these last few weeks. Another world record as he runs the 100 in a time of 9.033. The irony, uh, to be honest, him being the white guy in front, that does not happen 
in the 100 meter dash. It just doesn't, I'm sorry. Um, and then he moves on to a work ethic where he is the employee of the month every month at a car, car deal, dealership because that's how we work. And certainly in New York City, that's who we are. We push to be the best. He praises America for this, and then he praises them for winning our independence and how this nation became free and pursued this life of liberty. He goes on to how we created the greatest political system, in his opinion, of democracy. And you see, he actually makes a very good Abe Lincoln. Um, And you see Abe Lincoln painting the White House. Um, He speaks about the pioneering that America has done by putting people on the moon, even if it was filmed in a studio in Hollywood somewhere. That's my comment, not his. And then the ad ends like this. It ends with him and his family celebrating America and him identifying all of a sudden with being an American and saying this, this is what makes us the best nation in the world. And it says, his, his tagline is this, perfect Galaxy Note S7, perfect for busy Americans like us. Perfect for busy Americans like us. And then the tagline after he finishes by the very product, by the company, is this. This product, do more. Galaxy Note S7, I think. Now, this is not a judgment on you if you have a Galaxy Note S7. So just relax. We all need these things. But this is one particular aspect of a narrative that we've been invited to partake in. And you can see the subtle changes that happen from the beginning where he, as an outsider, is critiquing this narrative. He's critiquing the fact that America is all about doing and achieving and carrying on and what do you do this for? And and subtly he gets won over and in the end, he's bought in completely. Americans like us. And my point as I looked at this and as I thought about this amusing story is the fact that we all get invited into a story. It might not be exactly that story. It may be another story. If you are here and you don't believe in a God, you've been invited into a story where God doesn't exist. And so you, no matter what you believe, you have created a sense of meaning around your belief system. You have created a way within which life makes sense. And we all seek for this meaning, for the grander story that our life is a part of. Politicians sell us stories, make America great again. I'm not critiquing that. I'm saying he's selling a story of what greatness looks like and how we form ourselves as part of that story. And I saw this very kind of humoristic view of what, what is America being great. And this person walked the streets saying, um, make America great again. Tell me, when was America great? And then these people would look backwards and say, I think it was great in the 1950s. And then this person was very clearly clued up on history and says, oh, you mean when segregation was, was normal and allowed and bought into? 
it's like, oh. And then they'd go, or someone else would go, oh, the 1900s or this. And like, oh, wow, you mean when slaves were this and this and this? And every time they, they thought back to, to the greatness of America, there was something that defined the brokenness of America as well. It's not just Donald Trump that's selling a story. Every politician sells a picture, a story of what life ought to be, what we ought to be as America, and invites us down that story, that path. Not all of this is bad, of course. The idea is just we're all perpetually invited into a narrative that gives us meaning for our particular lives. And as we look at the good news that's gone wrong, we very particularly have to ask ourselves, what is good news for us? What does good news mean to us? What right now would be good news if you received it right now? For some, it's the story of being debt-free. If you heard the news right now that your debts are paid off, that would be the greatest news that you could hear. For some, our story is If we could hear the good news that there is somebody, a potential spouse that comes our way and says, yes, I want to spend the rest of my life with you, that could be the best news that you could hear. And we all have these particular aspects, the stories that we, that we are longing for right now, and we get invited into them, and we are sold them so quickly, whatever we, our souls are longing for will be offered to us in a certain perspective. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the gospel? What is the good news defined by Scripture as Jesus spoke about it? Because if I were to ask this question now, and I'd ask you to answer, it would be, in essence, what many pastors do to induce fear and guilt, because everybody feels like, oh, I don't know if I have exactly the right answer. But if I had to ask, what is the gospel right now defining it, I think we'd get a few different answers, and they wouldn't necessarily be wrong, but they'd somehow be about, maybe about Jesus. Okay, Jesus, there's good news in Jesus. He's the good news. And it would be something about the cross. I know he died, and I know because he died, we get life. And we can articulate some of these, these aspects of the gospel, and yet somehow they're still just the slivers of the part of the gospel. And if you want to... Um, critique the gospel-centeredness movement, which is a beautiful thing, uh, it would prob- I, I would probably say that ask anyone, including yourself, myself, if you consider yourself gospel-centered, to have a conversation about what you believe theologically without using the word gospel, and we really struggle. Because gospel itself is just a word we throw out there without truly understanding what Jesus is meaning by it. We're a gospel-centered church. I want to live a gospel-centered life. Tell me what that means. And so I ask myself that all the time as we go along. And so as we look at what the gospel is supposed to be truly as Jesus defines it, I want this to be what frames our story for the fall particularly. And as a church, to be reminded today again, what are we here for? I went camping with our boys. I, I try to do this once a year, try to just to start a, a little bit of a rhythm of taking our boys on this like man journey and what that includes is camping once a year together and I invite some other men who can speak into their lives so that when they get to uh, the age of 13 those men can be invited to their 
party, whatever it is, their moment, and they can say things like, true story, the first time we went, we went white, like river rafting, very easy, not white water, not crazy, down a river, uh, and Lincoln, who was six at the time, seven, turning seven, um, he got onto the raft with some other men. I wasn't in the raft with him. We, he, we had a four-mile row that we had to do all together. And 20 meters from the shore that we pushed off on, 20 meters, what's that like? 25 yards, 30 yards, whatever it is. Lincoln said, I'm tired, I can't do anymore. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for the men who did come with because the men on the raft said, no, 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 we're going to do this and we're going to do this together. And by the time they finished four miles, Lincoln was exhausted, spent, he had rowed, and he had conquered something. He had overcome the pain. And now I have at least some other guys ready to tell them, I remember when you were six and you couldn't row 20 meters. Anyway, so we go camping this week, and it was a really beautiful thing because some of the guys that went with us for their birthdays, which is this week, got them compasses, but like real compasses. Ones, and then they, here's some pictures. There should be one right here. And then we sat, and beforehand, we, we blazed a trail for the, it's part of the Appalachian Trail that we went to go hike. And we blazed this trail, and they got taught how to use their compasses and what to look towards and, and marking their way. And, how, and they got told, this is the, the degrees on your compass that you have to follow. If you're going in this direction, you know that you're going in the right direction. And they got taught all of these things. And so there's Lincoln on the right. Every time, there was about two or three times in the hike that we did that, that there was a climb up the rocks where we could step above the trees, which is very dense. You, can't, you can almost not see the sky as you're under the trees hiking, and all you're paying attention to is the next footing, the next rock jumping over this, because it's at times a little treacherous. And so as, as we climb up these rocks to the top, we get a moment where we can remember the longer path of story and the place we're actually going. And I didn't have to tell them. They immediately pulled out their compasses as we got to the top to check again, are we heading in the right direction? Are we going the way we needed to? And so they did this. The next picture is one of um, them being taught how to, uh, how to filter and purify water from a brook that's just running. And how to, uh, that's, that was not Malachi's backpack. <laughs> that, that was Nick Adamson's backpack that he made him carry just to prove that he should be a man. No, I'm kidding. It was just a moment where Nick, uh, where we said, try that backpack on and see. And um, we, we captured it. Nick, Nick showed them how to make fire without, um, without matches or light or anything like that. And so they had these experiences where they learned. Uh, but the beautiful thing, as I walked with them and as Nick and some of the other guys spoke life over them, was to remind them that there was a bigger picture than just, we need to make it over this river. That there was a bigger picture than, oh, we just got to make it over this hill. That there was a greater story and that they had a compass that could take them somewhere. And what I want to do in essence today very briefly is look at what the gospel is. Look at what scripture says as the grand narrative so that anything we jump into in this fall, which is a really beautiful season for, for us as a church, because God does some amazing things. There's life, there's new things that are happening. But unless we have the big picture, we'll just be busy. 
Unless we have the big picture, we'll do exactly what Walt said in the ad, which is, oh, just let, let's just fill for you busy Americans. Let's not be seduced into that story. And so let's start with this quote from the 1975, a band that I like. I've got a God-shaped hole that's infected. These, uh, this band, as far as I completely understand, are not Christ followers. They don't adhere to uh, a belief system. In fact, I think they call themselves atheists. But this is the song they write. I have a God-shaped hole that's infected, and I'm petrified of being alone. It's pathetic, I know. And I toss and I turn in my bed. It's just like I lost my head. Lost my head. And if I believe you, would that make it stop? And he's speaking to the God that says he exists. If I told you I need you, is that what you want? And I'm broken and bleeding, and I'm begging for help, and I'm asking you, Jesus, show yourself. A cry, a deep soul cry for something bigger than what they're currently experiencing. The next one, another band, or another person at least, that I love, James Vincent McMorrow. Think about it. There must be a higher love. Down in the heart or hidden in the stars above, without it, life is a wasted time. Look inside your heart and I will look inside of mine. A longing, a perpetual seeking for something greater that helps our life make sense. Something greater, a picture above the trees, something to look forward to that makes this hill that I have to climb right now make sense. Let's look at Scripture as to what Jesus and Scripture says. In Genesis, there is the ultimate story of creation. God creates and He makes human beings. And He, let me say this in case you haven't heard it, but it, it has been said. He does not make us humans out of need. He does, he's not lonely. He exists in perfect community in the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And He is so self-giving and loving that He creates humanity so that they can experience His very nature as a blessing. The greatest act of blessing He could think of was to share Himself with others. So He creates and he gives us the opportunity to experience him, his love, his kindness, his joy. But he cannot create robots because that's not love. And so he creates people who have the ability to love or not love with the will to choose and not to choose. And in the moment of the fall, as Genesis speaks of, they choose to say the authority that you have as our creator, as the one who is loving and, and just and kind, we choose to follow a different narrative and submit to a different authority, the seduction of the snake, of Satan that says, no, you can do what you want and it'll be better. And what they find out very, very quickly is, yes, we can do what we want because that's what love is as it is created, but it may not be better. And they experience the brokenness and the pain and the heartache of not choosing the authority of the loving creator, but choosing some other illegitimate authority to live by. And so that's, this is why through the Old Testament, it's, it's so much, but I'm going to read a few excerpts. Isaiah 9, this is the prophecy of how to redeem. God's speaking about He's going he's to bring back the beauty of creation. He's going to bring back the newness of life that He promises in His created order. And it says this, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the prophecy speaks again of a time in which righteousness, justice will rule and reign, but it comes in authority. It starts by the redirecting of, of the authority of God over, over humanity again, as it was intended in the beginning. Isaiah 52, the good news, says this. How beautiful, uh, this is quoted in Romans 10 as well. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Who bring good news. Listen to the good news. Who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and this is the good news, quotes in Scripture, who says in Zion, your God reigns. So often we make the good news of Jesus, oh, he died for us to take our sins away so that we can have life and live beautiful. No, no, the good news, that fits into a larger picture, and the larger picture is when God reigns, Life makes sense. When I have the big picture, when my compass is doing my work for me, when, when I understand the voice of sanity, of direction, the plumb line, when I submit to that, my path makes sense. But as soon as I violate that compass, as soon as I violate that word, I get lost. But it's hard to see that when I'm underneath the canopy and I'm just kind of trying to do everything and I think this is the way to go and I go up this way. God reigns. This is the good news. And so we get to Luke chapter 4, which was the teaching text, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty for the captives. This is Jesus quoting this about Himself from Isaiah 61. And recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to rip them from the authority that is illegitimate and, and, and puts burdens, illegitimate burdens upon them, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus says this after he speaks to a crowd of people and he ministers and he has to go. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to, the, to other towns as well, for I was sent for this very purpose. And so Jesus defines his good news in this moment and in all the other moments. His first message is the kingdom of heaven is near. It's, it's, it's attainable. We can step into it. So I want us to understand that the good news that we are part of the story, the biggest story is that God reigns and that we can, in the good news of Jesus, his own message is that the best place for us to be as creation is under the righteous rule and reign of God. That is the true place of freedom. And so we are left with this idea that Jesus cannot just be a great guy. He cannot just have good ways in which to live, things that we can just obey and things that we can just like, yeah, these are kind of principles to life. No, no. If we do not come under his reign, we cannot experience the fullness of life that he promises. Acts 17, 
we move on from Jesus to the way the church operates, and Paul and Timothy uh, finds themselves... Uh, um, Caleb mentioned this last week, Sunday, finds himself in trouble. They've stirred up trouble by preaching a particular message. And that message was this. They preached another king. And the reason I say that particular passage or or refer to that is most people don't get upset with Jesus when he speaks about just justice or being kind. Most people, if they don't believe in God and the sovereignty of God, don't get upset when we say something like, yeah, Jesus' message was kindness to those who are suffering. They're okay with that. But we really, really struggle, my heart struggles, when I am told that there is another king that has authority and I have to submit to that authority. That's when the true struggle comes. Because we don't necessarily equate that with the beautiful life that is call, that we are called to. Now Abraham in Genesis 12, uh, this beautiful promise that God gives him as he calls Israel to be a display nation is this. God says to him this, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And this, in essence, becomes the very mantra of Israel's purpose. God gives them the largest story. And often we think of Israel as an exclusive group of people that God chose to be excluded. But when we see the very purpose for which God chose and separated Israel... He actually says, I am choosing you, separating you, defining you so that you can be that blessing to all nations. It was not God's intent to choose one nation and just bless them. It was God's intent to give all nations, all people, everywhere, a nation that can display what the kingdom of God is like so that they can be blessed, so that they can be invited into the same story. Because God knows we need an invitation by seeing what that is like. Israel and the Old Testament was not an exclusive structure, so only they can experience the blessing of God. It was a structure so that all people can experience the blessing of God. And I say that because... As God shifts that through, the, through Jesus, fulfilling the Old Testament, fulfilling the, the, the law, and he comes and invites the church to become the people of God, the people to display, it gives us again a little glimpse into what our very purpose is, yours and mine, to be a display for all people to be blessed and see what the kingdom of God is like. The problem is that we're all talkers. We talk about the kingdom, but it is being displayers of the kingdom that is the important part. I'm going to skip forward to a a text in Ezekiel 44. It says this, the Levitical priests for Israel, the priests um, were called to this. I'm going to only read one line, but there's a big section on what they were supposed to do. Uh, It says, well, in verse 20, it's not on there. It says, they must not shave their heads nor let their hair grow long. They are to keep their hair and they've got to do all these things. They're not supposed to drink wine. Uh, They must not marry widows or divorced women. They must marry only virgins of the Israel. All these rules that they're supposed to obey. And then this is the line that God says to them. It says, they are to teach 
my people, the difference between the holy and the common. And show them how to distinguish between the clean and the unclean. And so the priests became an example of what life is like in the kingdom. The hope, the, the justice, the joy. And it's by, it was a very visible example. It was, they're going to live a certain way so that Israel could understand what the kingdom is like. So that Israel could live in a certain way so that the world can understand what the kingdom is like. And so God has always chosen the priests to display the goodness, the kingdom of God to a world that needs to see what it is like. And so we ask ourselves this question, what is the kingdom of God like? The kingdom of God is a place of radical change. Jesus came, and for the first time in known history, he brought worth to children. Children were kind of seen as discardable. Children did not have worth. And when Jesus said, bring the children to me, it was a radical change in notion. And he displayed what the kingdom of God was like. Children are valued, loved, important. Maybe not to the extent of Park Slope parenting. <laughs> Just a joke. But children had worth only from that point onwards, as historians tell us. Women were invited into previously banned places. Women were not allowed to sit at the feet of a rabbi. And when Jesus says to Mary and Martha, Mary chose what is better, he's not only saying, Mary chose to be with me in my presence, and uh, Martha chose to go and work hard. There's nothing wrong with hard work. What he was doing in that particular moment as well was saying that Mary sitting at my feet is a new reality. And it was scandalous because Jesus was the rabbi. The rabbi allowed some... When Paul says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, he uses exactly the same term. And only men were allowed in that place. And so Jesus comes in a male-dominated culture and he, he, he actually just gives picture after picture of what the kingdom of God is like compared to the kingdom of, of, of earth. And he says, women have value. I love them as much as anyone else. They are not of lesser worth. Jesus comes and, and displays the kingdom. Greatness was redefined as humility through Jesus. Every leader in his day was defined by the great. Alexander, the great. Every leader had titles that made them just great. And then it says in Philippians, Jesus considers, considered his reputation to be of no worth. He laid it all down and he says, I will come to serve, not, uh, um, serve, not to be served. His leadership style completely changed what greatness was. Generosity became the default setting in the kingdom of God because of him. In the kingdom of God, there's freedom for those who are captive. What is the kingdom like? There's freedom from self-hate, freedom from self-rejection, freedom from manipulation and control, freedom from fear of death and punishment, freedom to love and be loved, freedom to be known and to, and to know deeply and truly, freedom to create, freedom to seek, healing for those who are broken, sadness and despair turns to joy in the kingdom. Those who are wounded are bound up and find healing in the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God like? In the kingdom of God, the purposeless find meaning. 
Those who need forgiveness find it. Those who need reconciliation have access to it. Those who are burdened get their burdens lifted because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. There is a relentless invitation for all who are thirsty in the kingdom to come and drink of the water of life and experience life to the full. What is the kingdom like that we are to display? In the kingdom, there is humility as opposed to greatness. All human life is valued. Those who are marginalized are uplifted and join in. Those who are skeptics find hope. Those who are full of anxiety find peace and solace. Those who are hostile receive, get their hostility absorbed, uh, absorbed and forgiveness granted. What is this new world like that we are invited into? There is wholeness for broken families in the kingdom of God. There are identities that are secured by the king who speaks over us as a father. The kingdom of God displays a whole new reality, and it is our privilege to display that to the world by the finished and complete work of Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are promised all the blessings of the kingdom of God. But we still feel weak and we still feel sinful and we live in this kind of hardship, frustration, in-between world, knowing that we are walking step by step into the kingdom of God. And so we ask ourselves, how much can we experience that kingdom now and how much will be coming as a promise? There is a balance that is so hard, but it is possible to walk as we long for the kingdom of God in our very lives. And God gives us His Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing that which is to come. And so we can now, by the Spirit of God, be the people of God displaying the life of God in our city. And as we go into the fall, we ask ourselves, what is it that we are doing again? What is my life about again? What is this church about again? Ephesians 3 verse 10, the church is chosen to make the wisdom of God known to principalities and powers. The wisdom of God, which says all these things of the kingdom of God, if you serve, you, you step into it. If you appreciate life, if you live justly, and we get to be that. And so 1 Peter 2 and Revelation both uh, says the same thing. It speaks of us, you and me, being the kingdom of priests. And so in the new reality, as you step into the fall, as you think about your job, as you think about your relationship, as you think about how you're living out your singleness, as you think about how you live out your finances, think about what it is like to be a priest representing the kingdom life of God to a world that needs to see that there is a better authority to submit to, that there is life that awaits for those who says, yes, we trust that God, our creator, is trustworthy. We are a kingdom of priests who are now called to live this life. And this life is an invitation. It's an invitation to step into the beauty. And so my questions that I leave us with right now is, what is the higher purpose of your life? What is the ultimate story by which you live? Is it time to just step onto the rocks again, look through the compass again and go, okay, what is my career really about? My marriage is it really about me and my satisfaction? Is it really about me and making it through 50 years? Is it really about me and displaying what the life and the love of God is like to my kids? How I raise my kids, is that 
story, one of where we say the kingdom of God come for my kids. How, do, how can they understand that? And so we're called to submit to a king this morning. That sounds hard, but the life that we find on the other side is beautiful. I'll leave you with this, <clears throat> this quote. Jesus speaks a really hard word at a particular time in his ministry, and people start leaving him. People start just going, no, nah, I can't do that, man. That's really, really hard. And he says to his disciples, will you now leave me too? Will you now leave as well? And their response is this, where will we go? For who else has the words of life? And they had tasted and seen that Jesus' invitation brings life. And his invitation today brings life. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to partake in, in communion. But as I pray, just, um, just, just consider how you need to respond yourself, as I did and as I should, to the invitation for the sovereignty of God, the reign of God to come over, for God to just readjust again, going, no, I'm just a few degrees off in my career. I made it about me. I made it about my story instead of about God's story. In my, my parenting of my children, I made it all about them and all about what they should achieve instead of saying, no, no, there's a kingdom of God. In my finances, when I think financially, I've, I've actually made it about my financial security, not about the kingdom of God and what that should look like. And I've forgotten that generosity and stewardship go hand in hand as God invites us into. So as I pray, just consider how God is expecting you to respond in submission to his invitation. God, we come and we submit to you. And we ask you if you would come and speak to us. We ask you if you would come and just stir our hearts again to the call that you have for us. Stir us again to a larger story that's way more than about us. Show us again your beauty. Show us again your magnificent design. We declare this morning, your ways are higher than our ways. And we need you, we trust you to speak that truth over us, God. Holy Spirit, you are the deposit guaranteeing that which is to come. And I pray that you would come and fill us now in this room, that you would come and speak to us again. Just give us a picture of what your kingdom is like and, and come and empower us and draw us and, and call us again to the fact that we are part of a story where we submit to a righteous king. Your word is that compass. It's the light, the lamp for our feet and the light for our path. You make known your ways to us. And at this moment, though we may not have the specifics, we want to return to you. We want to return to the fact that you are the one that righteously adjusts and shows us the way of life. Thank you for inviting us into that space. We pray. Amen. So uh, would you stand with me as we uh, get ready to receive from this table? But as we receive, uh, I want to invite you to come in, in this manner this morning. We often come to remember, to remember what Jesus has done for us. Uh, we often come to receive the love displayed by his sacrifice. These are all good things and not bad reasons to think on when we come this morning. But I want to ask us that as we come, 
this morning, that we would consider that coming and partaking in this is us kind of metaphorically bowing our knee to the way of Jesus. This is us submitting, coming under what Jesus is asking us. This is us saying, your will be done, not ours. This is not just going, okay, give me a get out of jail free card and I can go home today for the next week and I'll come back next week. That's not what this is. This is a moment of going, I trust by your death and my submission to your lordship that I will have life, true life. And you may not know the specific of it, but you do know that trusting God, even if you don't see the end right now, is the better way to go. And so, God, you invite us particularly to come and partake of the, the bread that re- represents your body. And we receive it now with gratitude and submission to your way. And your blood that was shed sufficient to wash away our brokenness, sufficient to, to give us life as we drink and taste of it. Thank you that by your brokenness we receive life. And as we take, we also submit today to your ways. Come and lead us through this fall, not into the busyness of life, but into the life, the true life that you bring, we pray in your name. Amen.